Good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If this is your first time here, welcome. Glad you're here. And if you've been here for a while, welcome. Glad you're here, too. It's just a great day to be here. At some point during the service, if you all want to fill out the Connect card that's in the worship folder, you can drop that in the offering that's coming up later. Speaking of the offering, today is our first splash offering for Cannonball. If you've not been here before and you're like, what is that? It's okay. Uh, but for those of you who've been around, today's the big day. We're trying to front load some of those objectives and things we want to take on. So uh, it's just a great day of worship and celebration as we even uh, put our faith and trust in God and make these big uh, gifts to the Lord. So I'm looking forward to that. Hey, I want to say thank you, but I don't know who to thank. Thank you to the person who dropped the $10 on the floor to fund my Chick-fil-A this week. I really appreciate that. Next time, you know, if Jerry hadn't been so honest and found it, uh, so next time, you know, just go ahead and feel free to give it to me. If you know the serial number on this 10, I'll be happy to give it to you. I'm going to put it in the offering, honestly, but I'm not going to do it today. If somebody really lost your 10, just come get it after service. And if not, I'll throw it in the offering. So glad you're here. Glad you're here. As we get into this true story, last fall, a man named Walter Samosco Jr. died in Carson City, Nevada. I think we got a picture of him. Uh, the guy was like just a, a recluse. No friends, no family to speak of. Really had like 200 bucks in his checking account. Poor guy was dead for a month before anybody even went looking for him at his house. However, uh, authorities, when they went in to kind of clean everything up, were shocked to find a treasure in his garage. The guy had been collecting and hoarding gold for years. They found in ammunition containers gold bars and gold coins. Just the weight of it alone was worth over $7 million in the garage, right? And now they've started auctioning some of these coins off. They're from other countries, and they're from the early 1800s. They're auctioning them off in the last couple of months. The value is far beyond just the weight of gold alone. I mean, I'm thinking about this. What would it be like to, to find that kind of treasure, like to buy a house and it's tucked away in the attic? Wouldn't that be amazing to realize you've got that kind of treasure available to you? I'm actually here to tell you this morning you do. You have one of these? Show me if you got it. Half of you are holding up your smartphone right now. <laughs> You got one of these, you have treasure. I'm sure every American has at least got access to one of these. You've brought it to church today, or it's under your bed at home, or you've got a big family version. You got one of those with the dates written in it, and it's like too big to carry anywhere. You need like a forklift. We've probably all got one of these. What's your experience with this? Has this been helpful to you? For some of you, you'd say, yeah, this is useful to my life. For some of you, go, I've tried to access it, but I just don't get it. I mean, I get started, and I can't get through it. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how it's put together. Uh, maybe you've tried to read it and just given up. I hope to help all of us with this today because this is a treasure. See, what I want to help you with is this series called The Story to understand what this is. And I'm hopeful that by the time we finish this message series called The Story that you're going to realize that this is gold. That just because it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere doesn't mean it's not valuable at all. You're going to realize what a gold mine you've had the whole time. This Bible has the power to change your life. It really does. We talked about the story. You saw it featured just a moment ago. What is the story? This is basically a Bible reading program. A couple of pastors, Randy Frazee and Max Lucado, put this together for their church in Texas. They're pastors. What they realized was their members would read the Bible. Maybe this has been your experience. They would read the Bible, but they really didn't understand the big picture of it all. They didn't understand how it all went together. And maybe as you've read the Bible, you understand it's actually a collection of 66 different books it's not in chronological order. It's hard to kind of trace it sometimes through. So what they did is they took the New International Version of the Bible and they cut and pasted, and they put it together in chronological order, big chunks of the Bible. They put it in story format. There's 31 chapters to this. So this is the Bible. It's the NIV version of the Bible. 
but it reads like a story because that's the way it's organized. And so you can get a copy of this and read it, uh, and you can go along. Here's what our plan is. Over the next 31 weeks, we're going to read a chapter a week. You can read along in here, or you can read along in the story. My hope is that you'll read ahead of the message, then come here and we'll teach on it. You can go to Life Group later that week and discuss it then. And at the end of that study, that 31 weeks, you will have a big picture view of what the Bible's talking all about. And here's my prayer for us as we go through this. This is from Second, or I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 2. The Apostle Paul wrote this to his friends in that church. And he said, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard, accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And, and that's my prayer for Connection Christian Church, that as we go through this study over the next 31 weeks, with a couple of intermissions in there, but that you will realize that this is a treasure, that this is not just some things that some people wrote down, but this is actually the Word of God. It has the power to change your life. Now, uh, before we get into the first chapter of the story, I understand some of you might be thinking, like, really, seriously, 31 weeks? I, I told you there's two intermissions. There's one in the summer, four-week intermission in the fall as well. But, yeah, 31 weeks. And here's why. For the first thing, if this is going to be helpful to you, you've got to understand it, right? If you're going to access the depths and the treasure that's in here, you need to understand it. Here's another thing that I've observed. In American culture, the surveys are all telling us the same thing. Biblical literacy is at an all-time low. A lot of us don't know our Noahs from our Jonahs, from our Jobs, and it just kind of gets confusing. So I hope to help with that as we go through the story. But here's the biggest part of it. You and I are part of the story. I think a lot of times it's tempting to look at the Bible and think like this is a bunch of people who lived way back then and it has nothing to do with my life today or it's a bunch of prophecies about the hazy future and maybe it's going to happen. I don't know. But it's tempting to look at the Bible and think it has no relevance to our lives. But when we look at the big picture that God is telling in the Bible, we understand that their stories and our stories are helping write the big story and we're all part of the story. The story's not over yet. God is using our lives to help write this story, even now. You're part of the story. You know who Donald Miller is? You ever read anything about him? He's a contemporary author. He wrote something, Blue Like Jazz. He's a good author. I'd recommend him. He once said, to have a great story, you need a character who wants something and has to overcome conflict to get it. Just think about right now, the movies that you love or the books that you love, isn't that true? Isn't that like the best story when a character wants something? They've got to overcome conflict to get it. Like the rebels, they want peace and freedom in the universe, but they've got to overcome the evil empire and destroy the Death Star first. A character wants something, have to overcome conflict to get it. Uh, think about Cinderella. What does she have to overcome? Wicked stepsisters, wicked stepmom, because she wants a prince. She wants a happier life. Katniss Everdeen, she wants to save her sister, but she has to win the Hunger Games first, right? Great stories, have a character who wants something, have to overcome a conflict to get it. How about the Bible? The Bible is the story of God and the conflict that he has to overcome to get what he wants. And the Bible, man, it's an epic story. It's a true story. It's the best kind of story. And it's the story we're living right now. When you look at the Bible, there's like two levels to it. There's what we might call the upper story. And that's like the 30,000-foot view, the big picture of what God is doing through all of history. But then you zoom in from the 30,000-foot view and you come down to the six-foot level that we all live in or the five foot two and three quarters level that my wife lives at. But, you know, you live at your level, and you live your life at this level, and you realize that the Bible is a story of just all these individual lower stories, 
But when you put them all together, that's what makes the upper story. And when we understand the big picture of what God has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do, it helps make sense of our individual stories. And people say, I don't understand the purpose and meaning of life. Well, you need a picture of what the upper story is doing, the conflict that God is overcoming because he's something he wants. So let's get into the, the story today. I'm just going to warn you now, brace yourselves, because we're going to cover the first 11 chapters of Genesis, otherwise known as chapter 1 in the story. So just buckle your seatbelts. This is like saying we're going to cover the Civil War in the next 20 minutes. How do you do that? States' rights, succession, Emancipation Proclamation, Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, Appomattox Courthouse, assassination, done. Well, we're not going to do it quite that quickly, but let's get into it. The story, chapter 1. If you got your Bible, turn to page 1. Isn't that awesome? Easiest thing you'll ever find in your Bible, Genesis 1.1. If you've got the story, you can turn to page 1. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to start at the very beginning. And you know, every great story has to have an awesome opening sentence, doesn't it? If you're going to write a great story, you better have a good opener to grab people's attention. You know, like, once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. One of my personal favorites, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's uh, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. How does the Bible start? Genesis 1.1, I want you to read this aloud with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is an awesome opening. When we look at the story, it tells us immediately what's going on. God creates, and it's all good. From the very beginning, we meet the main character, and it's God. And we understand from Genesis 1, everything that exists, everything we observe, everything we experience in life is because God created. It's like the curtain rises, the spotlight shines on the stage, and there's God, and he creates everything. Now, I'll tell you this, and I'm not the first person to say this. I heard Dave Stone say this. If you can believe the first sentence of the Bible, you should have absolutely no trouble believing the rest of the Bible, Right? If you can believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you should have no problem believing that, a, that God can create a fish large enough to swallow a man named Jonah and keep him alive for three days. That's no big deal. You should have no problem believing that God can keep a man named Daniel safe in a lion's den filled with ravenously hungry lions so that he walks out the next morning without a scratch on him. You should have no trouble believing that God has the power to raise free people from the dead. I mean, if God is powerful enough to speak the universe into existence... If he's intelligent enough to just think of something like DNA, like that, that stuff's child's play, right? If you can believe the first sentence of the Bible, you should have no problem believing the rest of it. I find this interesting. As you read through Genesis 1, it talks about God created this and God created that. That word there in the original Hebrew language that Genesis was written in is a word that's only used of divine beings creating something out of nothing. Like when you and I create something, like we create a Facebook page or we create a new recipe, we're taking something that already exists and we're modifying it, right? But God like imagines things that never existed before and he makes them out of nothing when he creates things. And so we find this pattern in Genesis 1. How did everything get here? Well, God created it and then he looked at what he'd made and he said, it's all good. God creates and it's all good. You got this six-day pattern repeating itself. And so everything in the known universe was made in six days according to the Bible. On the first three days, it's like God put the canvas out there. He made light and darkness. He made sky, and he made the outer space, and he made land, and he made sea, and he's made the trees and the plants. That's the first three days, right? Then on day four, he starts painting on the canvas. Puts the sun out there, puts the moon out there, puts the stars out there. 
He looks at the sky and he goes, it's kind of empty. I need to fill it with something. So he puts birds just everywhere. He looks at the water and he goes, it's kind of empty. So he puts fish in there and other kinds of sea creatures and porpoises and dolphins and manatees and everything else. He looks at the land and he goes, it's kind of bare. So he puts insects and bugs and animals and wild animals and cattle and cats and dogs and everything. He created it all in six days and he made it according uh, to his creativity. And look at verse 22 in your Bible of chapter 1. God blessed the animals and everything that he had made and he said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the water in the seas, let the birds increase on the earth. And then you go down to verse 25 and he said, he made all the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. They reproduced according to their own kind, which is why you will never see this picture in real life. I think we've got it up here. Kissed a dog and I liked it. That will never happen in real life because God created every animal according to their kind. Now look at verse 26 and verse 27 of chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image. Did God misspeak there? Didn't he mean to say, let me make man in my image? What's up with the plural pronoun there? Ever thought about that? Our English teachers would say to us, do you have a mouse in your pocket? Who's we? You know, is this the editorial we, the royal we? Why is God saying, let us make man in our image? From the very first pages of the Bible, we are taught about the Trinitarian nature of God. We're taught that God is three persons, right? When you go back to the very beginning, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the water before anything was ever created. You have God the Father saying, I'm going to create this. If you go to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, it teaches us that Jesus is actually the one who did the work of creation and spoke everything into existence. God is three persons. Now, he's so united that we say there's one God, and it's true, but there's three and we see this right from the very beginning. And then it talks about how God made man on the sixth day. He made everything else, and then he made man. He says, let's make man in our image. We, men and women, stand unique among all of the other things that God created. There is nothing else in all the universe that is made in the image of God. You bear the likeness of God. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means that we have free will. It means we have a moral choice. It means that we can create like God creates, not out of nothing, but we have a power and we have a, a specialness that nothing else in creation enjoys. Here's what I take away from that. You are not an accident. You are not the end result of a long evolutionary chain that started by accident with a protein that became a single cell that became some kind of a monkey-like creature that became you. You were made intentionally in the image of God to rule all over everything that God created. You were made to bear his image and to relate to him in a way that nothing else can. You and I were made to give glory to God in a way nothing else in the universe can. Now, I'm not going to wade any further into the evolution versus creation debate right now other than to say this. I understand that there are a lot of brilliant people out there with a lot of PhDs behind their names who sincerely believe that evolution is how life appeared on earth. Okay, I'm okay with Okay, that's fine. You believe that, that's fine. I even understand there are a lot of uh, people who say, I believe in God, and I believe that God used evolution to create what we have today, and I'm still okay with that. But here's the thing I would also point out. There are also other brilliant people with lots of PhDs behind their names who believe that God created it, and it was not evolution. They look at this, the, the theory of evolution and say, this is a theory that just really does not adequately explain life as we see it. In fact, evolution is a theory that many believe is on its way out the door. There are many scientists who do not embrace evolution. 
here's the question I think we probably ought to be asking about this. And I just, the reason I even bring this up is I just don't want you to think that the really smart people in the room believe in evolution and the people who don't know any better are the ones who believe in an, an intelligent designer. That is not true. The, the camps are divided on this. I don't know that creation versus evolution is really the question we ought to be asking. I think we should probably step back and ask a more foundational question than that. God or no God? Follow me here. If you do not believe that there is a God, if you don't believe there's a God who is powerful enough, wise enough, willing enough to create a universe, haven't you already excluded some possible explanations for how the world and life got here? Before you ever even look at the evidence, you've already excluded some possible explanations for it. You have a bias. I will agree and I will admit that people who believe in a God who created also have a bias. I just think everybody ought to be honest about what they believe beforehand as you look at the evidence. So what we can clearly see is whether you agree with it or not, the Bible teaches that there was an intelligent, powerful designer who made all of life and made man in his image. I heard about a little girl who went to her mom. She said, Mommy, how did we get here? And she wasn't like asking the birds and the bees questions. She was like, Mom, how did life get here? How did people get here? And so her mom said, Honey, it's like you learned at church. It's like you know how you learn in Sunday school. God created Adam and he created Eve. They had children and then their children had children and there's just more and more and more people and eventually it became us and your mommy and daddy and you. She's like, oh, okay. A few days later, she went and she asked her dad the same thing. I don't know if she's fact-checking or what. She goes to dad and says, Dad, how did we get here? And her, her dad says, well, honey, it was like this. Millions and millions of years ago, there were like monkey-like creatures and they kind of changed over time and over millions of years, they became more and more like people and eventually they became so much like people that they were people and then they were us. Really? Went back to mom. Mom, I'm confused. You said we came from Adam and Eve. Dad said that we came from like monkeys over millions of years. I don't understand. And her mom said, honey, it's really simple. When I was talking to you, I was telling you about my side of the family. <laughs> when your dad was talking to you, he was describing his. The concept of evolution versus the concept of an intelligent creator who put us here and made us in his image, they stand in stark contrast to each other. Here's what I want you to get. One view says you are here by accident. It could have gone another way entirely. One view says you were put here on purpose. You have meaning in your life. You are not an accident. You are the, the pinnacle of God's creation. When he looks at you, he sees great value. He's chosen to put his image in you. There is no other creature in all of God's creation that can relate to God in the way that you and I do. When God created us, he loves us, and we can love him or not in return. There's no other animal, plant, or, or matter in all of the universe who can do that. God even became one of us through Jesus, right? But he relates to us in a way that he cannot and will not relate to any other aspect of creation. We can choose to worship him. He listens to us when we pray. He rejoices with us when we rejoice. He grieves with us when we grieve. I love what Les Christie says. If God's got a refrigerator, he's got your picture on it. And he thinks of you every time he goes to get a snack at night. That's the kind of relationship you have with our Heavenly Father, God. And I want to just right now hit pause and ask you a question. I mean, this is an important foundational question. Do you believe in a God who created you in his image? It's okay, you don't have to answer. And the ushers will not come seek you out and escort you out of here if you go no or I don't know. 
You know, anyone's welcome here, and I, I like long for the day and look for the day when atheists and agnostics are here and people who just are confused and don't know. You just can think about this as long as you want, but think about it, okay? Do you believe that there's a God who created you? Let's get back to the story. In the beginning, God created, and it's all good. You look in Genesis 1, 31, and it says after God created everything, he looked at all that he made, including man, he said it's very good. So how do we get from God saying it's all very good to where we live today? Because I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would describe the world as very good all the time. How did that happen? Well, let's continue on through the story. When God created Adam and he created Eve, he gave them free will. He gave them free reign. He's like, here, I've given you this wonderful creation. You're in a beautiful garden. Knock yourself out. Have a great time. One thing, though, guys, Genesis 2, 17. Just one restriction. I just ask you to do one thing. Please don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because when you eat from that tree, you'll die. Other than that, just have a great time. You've got a wonderful place here. Knock yourselves out. Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself asking this question. Why did God put that tree in the middle of the garden? Aren't you just asking for failure when you put something like that in the middle of the tree? It's that tree in the middle of the garden is like, you can do anything you want, don't touch that tree. That's like the first thing you want to do, right? Uh, I'm going to go because it told me not to. It's a question of free will. If you don't have a choice, do you truly have free will? How else can you express love and obedience unless there is an opportunity to, to not love and a, an opportunity to be disobedient? God put the tree in the garden because he was respecting their ability to choose. You can have anything you want just to choose not to do this. And I think about this sometimes. I think about, like, how long was that period of perfection in the garden? You ever think about that? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. It could have been a day, week, month, year, century, millennium. I have no idea. It must have been awesome, though, right? Got your husband, your wife, beautiful garden, meaningful work to do, plenty of food, no fear, no shame, no guilt, It must have been awesome. No anxiety, no worrying about what you're going to wear. Think about that for a second. Then I start thinking about this. Adam, Eve, come on. You had one rule to keep. One rule, just don't eat from the tree, you know? You didn't have the Ten Commandments. You didn't have all the rules and restrictions. You didn't have subdivision covenants. You didn't have speed limits. You didn't have anything. You just had one rule, just don't eat from the tree. How hard is that? And then I start thinking, if I was there, I wouldn't have done it. You ever thought that? I wouldn't have done it. You know, if if I want a piece of fruit, I'll go get a a banana or a mango or something. I'll just leave the tree alone. And then in my most honest moments, maybe you're like me, I start thinking, yeah, I probably would have done it. Wouldn't you? I don't know how long it would have taken me, but I probably would have done it. I think about that. I think, you know, there's all kinds of things God tells me to do that I don't do. There's all kinds of things God tells me not to do that I do. Am I alone in that? Is it just me? You guys are not willing to be brave and tell me the truth. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that. This is how things got the way they are. God created everything and it was all good, but then man sinned and it all fell apart. Man sinned and it all falls apart. See, man was not alone in the garden here. In Genesis 3, we meet the bad guy of the story, and he is bad. We're allowed to listen in on a conversation between Eve and and a serpent, a snake, and it's actually Satan. And as we listen in on this conversation, it's one where we realize that Satan is twisting and distorting God's words with Eve, and he's just flat out lying to her. The serpent comes to Eve and says, hey, did God really tell you you can't eat out of any of the trees in the garden? 
which is obviously a distortion. God just said one tree, and Eve points that out. And then he just flat out lies, and he goes, you know what? God's lying to you. He knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And he just flat out lies to her. And Eve then gives in to this temptation, and she ate. And if you notice in Genesis 3, 6, where was Adam? I've always pictured Adam at work, you know. And he comes home, and Eve's like, guess what I did today, Adam? I ate from the tree, and it's really good. Here, try it. According to this verse right here, Adam wasn't off somewhere else. Adam was standing there listening to the entire conversation. Adam was being passive when he should have been protective of his wife. It's not like it's Eve's fault and Adam just kind of got carried along for the ride. This is why Adam bears the brunt of this. It was his fault too. And one of the saddest verses in the Bible is verse 7. It says that their eyes were opened. For the first time ever, they experienced guilt. I've done something wrong. They experienced shame. I'm not as good as I should be. They experienced fear. I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt here. I'm going to be in trouble. And they, they sinned and they've passed it on to us. I, I feel bad about this. Too. I, I hate reading this part of the Bible because God comes to the garden that night like he always did. He'd, he'd take an evening stroll with Adam and Eve every night. It's one of the favorite things that they did. He comes to the garden that night. God already knew what happened, but he went ahead and he let them tell him, Adam, Eve, where are you? For the first time ever, they're hiding from God. This is the first come to Jesus meeting ever happened right here. And God's like a parent. What did you do? What did you do? And they come clean and they tell. There were far-reaching consequences to what Adam and Eve did. One thing. God said to Adam, you know what? Because of what you did, people are going to have to work hard for a living. The ground is going to be cursed. It's not going to cooperate with you when you plant crops. Ladies, you know what? You're going to have difficulty getting along with your husband. You're going to have difficulty in childbirth. There were real consequences. The biggest one of all, they were expelled from the garden. The biggest thing of all, though, it says in Romans 5.12 in the New Testament, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience. Sin entered the world through one man, and death came in through that open door. And so death came to all men because all sinned. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but God did not create death as a natural part of his creation. If anybody ever tries to tell you death is a natural part of life and it can be so beautiful, shut up. No, it's not. God did not create death as a part of his creation. Death came into his perfect creation when people chose to sin. It was not part of the design at all. When we disobey, we suffer. You choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Sin leads to death. It's a natural consequence. And, you know, sometimes I think about this and I think about the legacy that Adam and Eve have passed on to us because everybody has sinned. And, and sometimes I think, well, maybe if I'd been there, I wouldn't have done it, but I know better. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we'd all been there, we would have all done the same thing that Adam and Eve did. And so the pattern continues. If you go on through the story into Genesis 4, you, we read that Adam and Eve had two boys. They had Cain and then they had Abel. Firstborn Cain killed his little brother Abel in a fit of jealousy. And then it just continued to go on. And you read that as more and more people were born, they invented new ways of doing wicked things. You know, God created good things, we invented wicked things. You read, somebody had to be the first person to create a lot of things. And so there were some good things that Adam and Eve's grandkids created, like they created musical instruments, they created metallurgy, they created shepherding. One of their grandkids named Lamech, though, invented something else. He invented polygamy and vengeance killing. Look down in uh, Genesis 4.23. 
Lamech said to his wives, plural, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. And so what we see is that Adam's choice became Cain's choice, became our choice. You want to know why the world's a messed up place? Because God created a great, perfect place, but we sinned and it all fell apart. It gets so bad that as you continue through the story and you get to Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that every single thought that people had was, how can I do something evil? If they had their Franklin Covey planner, they pull out their task list for the day. What do I do today? Hmm, think of something bad to do to other people. Great, I love doing that. That's how life was. You didn't have to go to Vegas. The whole world was Vegas. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that in every inclination and thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'll wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. I'm grieved that I've made them. That's kind of a sad thing, isn't it? God's just said, I've, I've had it up to here and then some. I'm going to hit reset and start over. Can I just hit pause here for a second and point something out to you? It's very tempting for us to sit in 2013 and think, my life does not have much meaning, for good or bad. You know, out of 9 billion people on the planet and out of, out of millenniums of history, whatever I do is not really that big a deal. Oh, no, I beg to differ. One person can have a horrible impact through their deeds. What you do can ripple out for generations to come. You just look at what happened here through Adam's sin. But that knife cuts both ways, doesn't it? One person's good can also ripple out for generations to come. We're about to see it. There's a theme that gets repeated through the story over and over and over. One man, one woman could save everyone. It eventually leads us to the point where we understand that Jesus ultimately saves everyone. One of the most hope-filled verses in the Bible follows one of the most despair-filled ones. Look at verse 8. God says, I'm grieved that I've ever made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is an account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Even in the midst of everything going horribly wrong, there's still hope. We understand through the story of Noah, and I'm not going to really go into it, God does hit reset on the entire human race. He floods the entire world with this global flood. It rains for 40 days. The fountains of the deep explode. It's just a horrible thing. The whole earth is destroyed. Only Noah and his wife, Mrs. Noah, and their three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives, get on this huge ark that Noah built, along with a whole bunch of animals. How many animals? Two by two, right? Man, or a, a boy and a girl, man and woman. And uh, though the clean animals, they brought seven of those, right? So they get all these animals on the ark. God does destroy the earth. They're saved through the ark. And righteous Noah, as we continue the story, um, we just understand that Noah was God's way of giving hope. And see, here's the third thing I want you to see. We sin, and it all falls apart. God's perfect creation is destroyed. But then God looks at that, and he's, he promises us something. And there's hope again. There's still hope. Adam and Eve, Cain, Lamech, all of us, we sin. Even righteous Noah. God's going to start over with one good guy, Noah. Noah comes off the ark, and what's the first thing he does? He plants a vineyard. He makes some wine. He gets drunk on the wine. He lays naked in his tent. His son comes in and like makes fun of his dad naked in the tent, and he gets cursed for that. And you go like, if this is the most righteous guy on earth and he can't get his act together, what chance do we have? Again, God promises and there's hope. 
God says, it's going to be okay. I heard a story about this very talented landscape artist who painted years ago. And people used to like come and watch over his shoulder as he would paint. And he started out one painting, and it was, it was pretty bleak. He paints lots of snow blowing in the wind, and there, it's up in the mountains, and the pine trees are kind of bowed over in the wind and the snow. It's overcast and dark. It's gloomy. It's starting to get dark outside. And up here high in the mountains as the snow is blowing, he paints a little stone cabin nestled in the, in the, like the mountains. And it's just a picture that's bleak, and it's full of despair. But the artist transformed the scene with one, one stroke of his brush. He took his brush, he dipped it in yellow paint, and he went over to the stone cabin and he painted a little bit of light in the window. Changed everything. Where once it was like an image of, man, how are we going to survive this? It became an, uh, a painting of hope. That window that was glowing there was an invitation to warmth and safety. It's like, like they put a window of hope right into the painting. And I know Genesis 1 through 11, it's not really a happy story. It starts high, but then it just really goes downhill quick. And you go, man, how's this ever going to get turned around? God, even in the midst of the worst parts of the story, takes his brush and he dips it in hope. I could fix this. Go back in your Bible to Genesis 3.15, where everything went horribly wrong. You see God putting hope, even in the midst of that. Just give you one example. There's two others, by the way. You can look for them. I'll tell you one of them. You have to find the other one. The other way that God paints hope into the story is after the flood, what did he put in the sky? The rainbow, right? Let me show you one other place where he puts hope. You find the third. Verse 15, God had this come to Jesus meeting with Adam and Eve, but he also had a uh, talk with Satan. And he said this to Satan, the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Now here's verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Snake's going to crawl on the ground, we get that. But then God goes to singular from plural. And he says, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. He, one person, what's he talking about here? This is the first time in the Bible that God talks about a Savior to come. Right in the beginning, right when we blew it, the worst way we could blow it, he's already painting hope into the picture. There's going to come one who will be a person. And Satan, you will hurt him. You'll manage to get sinful men to put him up on a cross, and he'll die, and he'll be buried. And you'll, crush, you'll, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to take away your fangs. The thing that everybody's scared of is death, and he's going to take that away. He's going to rise from the dead, and everybody's going to realize that not even death is permanent anymore. That if Jesus can rise from the dead, other people can come back to life and live forever. And so you may hurt him for a little while, but he's going to crush you. And so in the beginning, when everything goes horribly wrong, we understand that one person really can save everyone. There is hope. Romans 5.19 says this, Just as through the disobedience of one man, that's Adam, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So we start the story, and it starts up here, and you and I never experienced that. We never experienced perfection. That was so long ago. And the story just went downhill, and we're down here somewhere living out our lower story. But the upper story is still being written. And there is a destination to all of this, and we're experiencing it right now. And you need to know this upper story and where it's going so you can make sense of your life right now. Because no matter how bad things are in your life right now, no matter how bad you think you are or how many things you've done that are wrong, God can still put hope into your life. He can still make you. Here's the thing. Even righteous Noah can't be good enough 
to attain perfection again. We can never work our way so ourselves back up here. But Jesus did live at absolute perfection, and he can take us there. That's why over and over we invite people to come to Jesus and trust him. Because you cannot do it on your own, but he can do it for you. So I would invite you to stand now as we have a time of invitation and reflection. And as you stand, I want you to think about where you are with Jesus, the one who, who took us and is willing to make us righteous. I would invite you to think about where you are in God's story and maybe what God wants you to do next with your life. And maybe, maybe for you, today is the day that you say, I need to put my trust in Jesus. Maybe for today, you're like, I am a Christian, but I need a place where I can help write a better story. And we would love to have you part of this church to write the rest of your story. Do you think about what you need to do? And let me pray for you right now. And as we sing, you think about what you need to do next. Father, I want to thank you that you looked at us and you looked at our sinfulness and you did not give up on us. That you had this incredible plan before you ever created the world, that you knew we were going to fail you and yet you had a plan to rescue us. And I thank you that it's not done yet. I thank you that where it's going is so hope-filled. I thank you that there are going to be millions and billions of people in your family who are alive again because of what Jesus has done for us. I thank you, like Mike said, that we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection, that we can look back to what Jesus did. Please, Father, help us to be filled with hope. Help us to be obedient to you and to trust you and to do what you're asking us to do. I pray that in Jesus' name.